wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to another Bleeding Daylight episode. You can connect with Bleeding Daylight and keep the conversation going by searching for us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. The tragic loss of a close family member set off a series of events that radically changed the life direction of today's guest. I'll introduce you in a moment. Scott LaPierre is the senior pastor of Woodland Christian Church, a regional facilitator for church and family life, an author and conference speaker, and together with his wife Katie, he homeschools their nine children. He's a blogger and podcaster, holds a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration, Master of Arts in Education, and Master of Arts in Religion, Biblical Studies. Scott, thank you for your time. Thank you, Rodney. Really glad to be here and have this opportunity to talk with you and share with your listeners. Most listeners are still trying to get over the fact that you have nine children, so let's start there. What ages (laughs) are your children? Sure. So my oldest is 14, down to about two months. I guess you hear that someone has this many kids and you kind of think, I guess for lack of a better way to say it, that they must have tried to have this many kids and that wasn't really, um, wouldn't really be accurate. Instead, it's more that we got married and just wanted to have what God wanted us to have. And, you know, it could have been three or four and it's been nine and maybe it'll be 10 or 11. But, uh, and this isn't to say that other people have to have the same conviction, but we just wanted to get to the end of our lives and feel like God had his fingerprints all over our family and and built it for us. And so that's just kind of meant leaving it up to him. And this is what he's done for us so far and provided for us faithfully with these children. Kind of, if you look at my life, it's almost a list of jobs that don't always pay very well, like a school teacher and and now a pastor and doing some authoring that God's faithfully taken care of us. So we're thankful. I am interested in a little of your background. You mentioned that one of the jobs that you held was a school teacher. So you certainly haven't gone from school to college and then straight into becoming a pastor. Let me know a little of that journey towards becoming a pastor and and what were the jobs that led into that? So I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I'd say I was raised in a in a moral home, kind of a religious home, but I, I didn't I never heard the gospel. And then I I went through ROTC during college and was an officer in the Army, got out of the Army, wanted to be a teacher and coach, started teaching elementary school. And then my brother died of a drug overdose. It was very unexpected. And I was struggling. And there were some friends, my assistant principal and two teachers that I taught with that said, hey, you know, you really should come to this church and talk to the pastor. He lost his brother when he was about your age. And I, I went to this Christian church. I had no intention of, you know, getting saved or being bored again. I thought I was a good person. I thought if I died, I would go to heaven and had no appreciation for my sinfulness or need for a savior. And so I went to this church just to talk to this pastor, basically about my brother and hear him share about his brother and hope that he'd be able to give me some answers for what I was dealing with, my struggle and the grief that I was experiencing. And I went there and someone, I didn't go with the Bible and someone gave me a Bible and the pastor started preaching. I still remember from First Peter, and he read a verse and explained it and read a verse and explained it. And for the first time in my life, I thought that God was speaking to me through his word, and it was life-changing. That Sunday, I didn't even get to talk to the pastor about my brother or his brother, and I was already looking forward to coming back. 
the following Sunday, and someone bought me a Bible, and I started really devouring it. And then what, something interesting was I thought I was going to spend my whole life being a school teacher because I really loved it. But I found that after I became a Christian, my passion for school teaching was really diminishing and my passion for ministry was really increasing. And I guess if I said it simply, I wanted to tell people to open their Bibles versus telling students to open their math books and science books. Over a few years, I started getting more involved in home fellowships and Bible studies and doing kind of some lay teaching in the church. And people would say, hey, did you ever think about pastoring before? And it definitely was on my heart. And then God opened a part-time position in town at a church where I could still be a school teacher pretty easily. And the church grew. And then they hired me full-time as an associate pastor. And this is in California. Then I did that for a few years until I came to Washington State, where we had been since 2010. We figure we'll probably spend our lives here. My parents moved here. My wife's family, most of them have moved here. And we really love our church family. And I started doing some authoring publishing books from my sermon material about five years ago. Let's go back to that initial time when you were invited to go along to a church because of the grief that you were feeling. And many of us go through different times of of grief. But help me understand, how did coming to know Jesus, how did becoming a Christian actually help you to deal with that deep grief that you were feeling at the time? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And when my brother died, I was going, I, I spent, I still remember my, my dad called me to tell me that, that Jason had overdosed and I knew something was wrong because my dad never calls me. He's a very, he's a very quiet man. Uh, normally my mother was the one who would always call. And he told me that my brother had passed away and I spent the next day at home just kind of grieving. And it was probably the worst day in my life. I couldn't do that again. So that was a Thursday that I spent at home, got the news Wednesday night stayed home from teaching Thursday. And then I just went back to the classroom on Friday because I had to find something to occupy my time, basically. And I really, I enjoyed teaching. And so when I went back to the classroom, pretty much all the students knew they, they all came. I mean, the word must have spread and they came in very solemnly. I feel like everyone was very nice. Soon after that, people who were well-meaning began trying to tell me why this happened. Many, many of the cliches and platitudes that people typically offer. And again, I, I mean, that graciously, I do think they meant well, and they were trying to help, but I didn't really find any of the answers to be comforting. They didn't make a lot of sense to me. It was a lot of world, in hindsight, what I would call worldly or manly man's wisdom. It was actually the pastor's daughter, the pastor whose brother had died. It was his daughter I taught with her, and she gave me a card, and she said something that really stuck out to me. She basically said the opposite of what everyone else had said. Well, everyone else was trying to tell me why this happened. You know, she, she's a neat Christian lady. She gave me a card that said, I don't know why this happened, but I do know that God is sovereign. I do know that God has a plan. We don't always understand it. We don't always like it. And that was really comforting to me to feel like this wasn't some random, you know, arbitrary. I wasn't just this unlucky person or my brother wasn't just unlucky. I really appreciated seeing God's sovereignty over what had, what had taken place, even if I didn't understand it. And I, I know people don't like that. They don't like to think there's kind of this debate about what God allows versus what God causes. And sometimes I think that maybe we don't think this out fully because people don't want to think that God is behind something. They don't want to attribute something to God. They don't want to see his fingerprints on, on difficult situations. And it's not to say that God 
you know, causes everything. I mean, we see this in the book of Job where Satan was the one who did these things to Job, even though God allowed it. But the alternative is really that God is kind of sitting back, unable to control what happens. You know, that God is just sort of sitting on the throne, looking down at us, feeling sorry, saying, you know, I wish, I wish this hadn't happened. I wish that I, w- I wish that something else would have happened instead, but I wasn't able to do anything about it. And so we almost want to create this God that's not sovereign. We want to almost d- deny God's providence and we don't want his fingerprints on it. But to me, that's actually what's very terrifying or discouraging. If I thought that God was not in control, if he was not omnipotent or all powerful, that would be the very troubling. He wouldn't seem like a God that was worthy of worship. He wouldn't seem worthy of my submission. There's a lot of things I don't understand. I mean, nobody should listen to this and take this to mean that I understand everything God does. In fact, I, I think the, long, the more mature people become in Christ, the more familiar we become with God's word, actually, the more we recognize that we don't know. It, it sounds kind of funny, but generally the people who know the most are just the people who don't know enough to know how little they know. And after we learn more, we recognize how much we don't know. And so I don't, I don't mean to imply that I know why God does all the things he does because I, I definitely don't. I think that's part of walking by faith and, and not by sight or trusting the Lord that you're, you don't know why he's doing these things, but you do continue, you know, like Job says, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. To get back to your question, I went to this church and when God was introduced into my life or when I became a Christian, it was like, wow, you know, there was some meaning. There, there was purpose behind things that happened, even when they were very painful. There was reasons God allowed things and there was good that God, Romans eight twenty eight. there was good that God would bring forth from terrible things that happened. And even I didn't see it at the time that one of the things that happened, which now all your listeners would be familiar with, was I became a Christian. You know, that's what God used my brother's death to get me to go to a church where I heard the gospel. And then I shared the gospel with my parents over the next few years. And they became Christians. I was able to baptize them. And my dad served as a, as a deacon in our church. I married a Christian woman that I grew up with. We have children. Any good that has come from my ministry or my life, I can look back and say that you know, it came because I became a Christian and I became a Christian after my brother passed. And so it was really becoming a Christian and recognizing or appreciating God's sovereignty that allowed there to be any sort of order to what was happening, you know, and believe that, wow, I don't understand it all, but I do see God behind it. And that alone comforts me. I want to delve into your journey of writing. Because I believe it started after you had become a pastor. You had already, as you mentioned, been a teacher. So there's a certain amount of writing involved there. But then fast forward, you become a pastor and you start to enjoy the process of writing. Tell me about that. Sure. Actually, I hate to correct you, but I wouldn't really say that I enjoyed the process of writing. I never, I didn't grow up you know, aspiring to be a writer or or enjoying writing the way that many people do. But what I did really enjoy was I enjoyed studying God's word and I enjoyed putting messages or sermons together. And I guess there's kind of these two ways that people or pastors or Bible teachers, you know, prepare messages. I I don't want to sound like I'm oversimplifying, but you have one, one group who puts their notes kind of look like phrases or, or words that are supposed to jar their memory. You know, their, their notes are pretty short, abbreviated, just just a phrase here, there's maybe a quote, and they look down, they see these notes, and the notes remind them of what to say. There's another category of preachers who write out their notes very thoroughly, where the sermon 
the notes are more of a manuscript. And I'm definitely in that in that category. And so I was writing out these sermons that would be, you know, up to 6,000 words in length. They've gotten, they've gotten much shorter now as I've gotten more comfortable preaching, but every week I'd produce this manuscript of 6,000 words that I'd work on all week. And so it would be very polished. It would be very refined. You know, I'd continue to pour over it. So by the time I stood up to preach it, I didn't have to read it. I was familiar with it because of how much time I'd invested in it. But then I had all these manuscripts and my wife kept telling me, you have these manuscripts that are almost like chapters and books, these full sentences and just paragraphs of this, of this great content that you've put together, you know, for these sermons. And why don't you turn them into a book? And I was too busy. I felt busy and I kind of kept putting it off. And then one in 2015, we took a vacation and I just said, okay, I'll, I'll put these sermons from my marriage series. I did a preached a marriage series at my church. It was supposed to be the marriage month and it ended up being like the marriage year because I was enjoying it. And it seemed like the congregation was. And so I kept preaching on marriage week after week. And I had all the sermons from it and I put it, put that into my first book. Uh, that was Marriage God's Way. If I would have known all the work that was involved in publishing a book, I probably would not have had the heart to go through it because it, it can be so discouraging. It can be so, there can be so much re- rejection. There, there can be so much work with so little fruit or profit from it. And I, I don't just mean financial profit, although that's, that's the case as well. I just mean profit in terms of, you know, encouragement or, or people telling you that they're blessed by your work, at least early on. And so because I was sort of ignorant or oblivious to all that, I, I headed down this path, you know, began this journey. And that's just kind of, you know, how it, how it started. And then I familiarized myself more with the self-publishing route, which would be, you know, another story. And then recently, well, about a year and a half ago or two years ago, I started traditional publishing or working with a real a traditional publisher instead of self-publishing. And I believe that all the writing that you do, such as those sermons, which can then eventually be turned into books, that you run that past your wife so that she gets to help with just looking at it for clarity and and maybe making a few suggestions. That must be an enormous help to you going into the pulpit, knowing that, aha, I know this is going to connect because I'm not the only person that's read it so far. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Rodney. I appreciate you mentioning that. I have been going over my sermon with my wife for years. I can't remember a time that I wasn't doing that. And it actually became such a part of our ministry that there's a family in our church that sends some of their older children over every Thursday evening to watch our kids because with nine kids, you can guess that we don't, it's not the easiest thing to have three or four hours alone together. So there's a family that we love, the Zumsteins, who would send some children over some of their kids to watch our kids so that Katie and I had this, you know, three or four hour little season of time to go over my sermon. And it's greatly beneficial for two reasons. One, you, you insightfully pointed out one of the things that, that Katie offers me, and it's basically creating something that makes sense. She can say that doesn't make sense, what you just said, or I don't understand why you said that, or I don't understand your point, or that doesn't connect to what you just said. Because when people speak or preach, it makes sense to them. They're the ones saying it, but it doesn't always make sense to the listeners. And so to have someone that can sit there and say, okay, that was good, but this doesn't make sense. Or I don't know why this followed that. She knows the word well. She's deeply spiritual. She has contributions that bless me. There are times I've said things in sermons and people have come up after and said, that was a real powerful statement you just made. And if I was honest, I would say, well, actually I was going over my sermon with Katie and she's, she's the one that thought of that. And I've said that so many times in my 
in my sermons that my church knows. They've heard me say countless times when I was going over the sermon with Katie, you know, God says it's not good for man to be alone. I will create him a helper suitable for him or comparable to him. And that's one of the great ways, you know, wives help their husbands in different ways. You know, every wife listening to this, her husband isn't a preacher, but there are definitely ways that every wife, God wants every wife to help her husband. And this is one of the great ways my, my wife helps me. Have there been times when there's been a sticking point on on a certain theology that you've gone backwards and forwards and, and <laughs> had to come up with a consensus? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's kind of kind of ashamed of it. You know, I wrote this marriage book and then I put on these marriage conferences, which I thoroughly enjoy. But we, you know, we have our marriage problems. We have conflict. Some of it has occurred when we've been going over the sermon where, you know, my wife has a strong personality. She was told that she needed to marry someone with a really strong personality. So she wouldn't walk all over the person. She'll feel strongly about something. She'll, she might disagree with something I said, and she'll say, you know, I don't think that's what the word of God's. I don't think that's what that verse means, or I don't think that's true. And there's actually some things we both know we disagree on at this point in our marriage. You know, for the most part, we we're really compatible or we're equally yoked. You know, we, we agree on all the, all the major points. I don't want to get the impression that, you know, she doesn't hold to some orthodox truths of scripture, but there are a few minor things we disagree on. And so we encounter those in sermons, which does make for some very lively uh, discussions. And then there are other times where she just doesn't want me to say something. And many, many times I won't say it. I'll listen to her and I'll trust that God is speaking to me through her. And there are other times she wants me to say something. And I, I don't think I should say it because I, maybe I don't have room in the sermon. And I tell her that that sounds good, but I just don't think, I don't think the church wants to hear a two hour sermon on Sunday. So I don't think I can add all that. So yeah, I definitely have made some room for some really <laughs> interesting discussions and times I've had to come back and we've, you know, had to apologize for the way we, um, argued with each other. So most of the time you're you're agreeing with each other, but there are those slight moments where you say, no, I don't think so. I guess that must be an incredible comfort for you, knowing that she's going to speak her mind, she's going to tell you what she truly believes, rather than just say, yes, that's lovely, my dear, you go and preach it. It's a huge blessing to me to have her. I'm, I'm actually surprised that there it's not more common, that there aren't more guys, more pastors, going over the sermon with their wives. Cause I just, if I didn't have Katie to do that, I think there's been one or two times in like these 12 or 13 years that I haven't been able to go over the sermon with her for whatever reason. It felt much different getting up there to preach. I didn't, I didn't feel as prepared. And you touched on the point that you are now a conference speaker. Tell me, how did that begin? It pretty much followed me publishing. My first book was a marriage book. And the door kind of opened for me to put on marriage conferences, which we really enjoy. Then I'd get invited to be a, you know, a guest preacher at some churches or to be a speaker, you know, put workshops or something like that at a conference. But most of my speaking has been for marriage conferences. And, and it's, I'm not a, I don't, I don't think of myself as a big name speaker by, by any means, but I enjoy it. If I'm speaking to an audience, you know, I don't have to speak to 5,000 people or something to enjoy it. I feel like you know, if the church invites me and then, and there's people there that want to learn and grow, it's, it's really, I still, it's still as thrilling to me as it was the first time I did it. Katie and I kind of look at our lives and we don't feel like if you, if you kind of have these three doors, pastor, author, and speaker, I feel like pastor and author are the two doors that God has really opened wide for me and blessed that ministry and directed me to go through those doors. But the third door speaker, I get a few engagements throughout the year. My elders are gracious. They let me 
that let me have about six to eight engagements per year, but I'm not, I just talked to a guy last week. He's a, he's an author and a speaker and he speaks 50 to 70 times per year. I'm like 10% of that. I find it interesting that you're talking about these engagements where you're speaking at a conference. So it can be a a marriage conference and and it makes perfect sense there, or even to do a a one-off message about marriage at another church. I'm interested, though, about working through for about a year, you were saying, working through this idea of marriage within your own church. What does that mean for those within the church who are single, who have never married or are no longer married? What truths are there that you are sharing that are actually helping to build them up, even though they're not in that marriage relationship with someone? Yeah, that's a great question. That that was something that I entertained because... I, ha- I have a book on trials, and so as you'd guess, I, pre- I preached on trials in my church, used a lot of that material, and even since publishing that book, I've preached on trials other time, because if you're going through the Bible, you're going to hit verses that deal with trials and suffering, and there's just been times in our in our church, like there was a family and their son tragically drowned, It was, it, and my church isn't huge, you know, we're talking a few hundred people, and so when something like that happens, I mean, if you're at a church of like three or 5,000 people, I would guess the pastor can't just stop what he's typically preaching on and go and address the the situation in the church. But in my church, when this family lost their child, when their son drowned, we all felt it. I'm not saying we felt it like the family did, but we felt it. And we, we tried to go through that with them. I mean, and that's what the Bible says, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. And so I was able to stop and then preach on suffering and grief. Well, here's the thing, even though they lost a child, I knew that every single person in there could benefit from these sermons because suffering and grief is part of life on this side of heaven. You know, John 16, 33, in the world, you will, ex- you will experience tribulation. There are those topics, prayer, love, forgiveness, that every single person relates to. And you never worry about wh- whether this has application for all of your congregation. But you're, you're, to your point, when you talk about marriage, just like what you talk about, perhaps, parenting or there are some other topics that you recognize might not have as much application for everyone. And that that was on my mind. And so my first sermon, I said, we're talking about marriage, but really this does have application for all of you because either you're married or you're a young person. We have we have what's known as a family integrated church, which basically means we worship as families. We don't split up a lot. If you're a young girl, you need to understand what God says about wives. So you can pursue that. And then you need to know what God says about husbands. Even as a young girl, you need to know what God says about husbands because you're going to get older and you're going to need to know what to look for in a husband. And conversely, I would tell the young men, you need to know what God says to husbands because you're going to be one someday more than likely. And you need to know what God says to about wives so that you know what to look for in a wife. And then there were also some widows and it would seem like perhaps there's not as much application for them. But I told them that the widows in the church are the people that, in, according to 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that those people who are married cannot give as much, commit as much of their lives to the ministry because they have to care for their spouse. And so I would say if you're a widow, then God wants you to use more of your time and energy committed to the church. And so I would say if you're a widow, you should be doing some counseling. You should be doing some mentoring. That means being familiar with marriage because marriage is one of the most common forms of counseling to perform. In that sense, I really did see application for the whole church when we when we talked about marriage. And then the other reason to understand uh, what the Bible says about marriage is our relationship with Christ as compared 
with a marriage. And uh, in the Old Testament, God was the husband and Israel was the bride. And in the New Testament, obviously, Christ's relationship with the church is a picture of the marriage relationship. And so just to understand, you know, marriage is to understand or have some insight into our relationships with, with Christ. I'm wondering about that image that we see throughout Scripture of talking about our relationship with Christ like a marriage. And I'm wondering about the picture that some people have of marriage. And there are some guys who would think that, well, I get to be the head and I get to say what goes. And they forget that this is mirrored on Christ who gave his life. How often do you tend to encounter that where where people have this view of marriage that is only going to benefit them? There are basically two views of men's and women's roles. Uh, one is known as egalitarian or egalitarianism, which is that the belief that men and women are identical in terms of their roles and responsibilities. And this would, this would be the belief you would see in churches where they might have female pastors and they would not believe in submission or male headship. I, and I reject that view. I, I hold to what's known as a complementarian view. Complementarian, not, not complement C-O-M-P-L-I, but complement C-O-M-P-L-E, like fitting together, complementing each other. And complementarians believe men and women are equal, but not identical. And just because two things are not identical doesn't mean that they're not equal. Or just because there's authority doesn't mean that there's not equality. And, and, I'll, and I, I stress that because for people that are egalitarian or they don't like complementarianism, they they might complain and say, well, if you think that a husband is the head of the relationship or you think that a wife is supposed to submit to her husband, then you must believe that wives are inferior to their husbands. And we, we recognize that's not true because of so many other relationships in life. I mean, when I was a school teacher, my, te- my students, would they would recognize my authority as a teacher. And even as a teacher, I would recognize the authority of my principals. But I didn't think that I was inferior to my principles, and I didn't think that my students were inferior to me, or citizens submit to the government, employees that submit to the authority of their employer, and there's still equality, even though there's submission and authority. And even Christ himself, I mean, when we think about the triune nature of God, God the Son, Jesus Christ, is actually the premier picture of submission. He, He came to earth and repeatedly said, I came not to do my will, but to do the will of my Father. Every moment of his life was was an act of submission. Most dramatically in the garden, he says, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to, basically, I don't want to do this, but not my will, but let your will be done. If we think that submission is equated with uh, inferiority, we'd almost have to say that the son of God is the most, is, is inferior to the father. But, you know, I think most people acknowledge that's not the case. And so there can be submission, authority, headship, and still be equality. Now to go to your, your question specifically, Submission de- can definitely be abused. I mean, we're, we're sinful people. We can abuse anything. You know, God has given us many gifts that we can abuse. I don't think there's one single blessing that God has given us that in our sinful fallen state, we can't abuse. There's definitely great potential for, although I actually wouldn't even say that male headship is a blessing or a gift. I think for men that understand what it actually is, it's a huge responsibility to feel like you your family's kind of on your shoulders in a sense. There, there are times when Katie is looking to me and expects me to make decisions, and it would be a lot easier if I didn't have to. And like you were kind of alluding to earlier, if a husband understands that he is to be to his wife what Christ is to the church, 
well, then that means a husband is to be a servant. I mean, he's to live sacrificially. When I think about Christ, you know, I don't think of him lording his authority over the disciples or over others. I don't, I don't see him, you know, being a tyrant or domineering. In fact, he was loving, he was compassionate, he was gentle, and, and he served. And that's pretty much what life means as a husband. You know, you serve your family, you get up, you work hard all day, you go home and you spend time with your wife and your children, and then you get up and do it again the next day. You don't have the liberty, at least godly Christian men don't have the liberty to just sit and watch television for hours a day or play video games because you got this this family to take care of. It, it could definitely be abused, but you would not be able to defend that abuse from Scripture. If anything, Scripture convicts the husband to love his wife in a sacrificial way and to lead his family spiritually. You know, to pray, if if you look at what the Bible says to husbands, it motivates you to want to pray with your family, read the word with your family, you know, gather your family together for family worship, bring your family to church. It's a huge responsibility. I don't see how anyone being honest with the scriptures as a man could look and say, oh, wow, this is, you know, so great. It just lets me get my way all the time. If anything, it's pretty much the opposite. If I, if I was talking to a young man and he said, how do I know when I'm ready to get married? There's a few things I would say, but one of them would be, are you basically ready to give up living for yourself? Maybe you want to keep skiing or playing video games, or you want to keep doing all these things. And I'm not saying these things are sinful, but if you're not willing to put your wife and then your children ahead of those things, then you're not ready to get married yet. You know, First Corinthians 13, Paul says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And so I'm not saying that young men can't do some of these recreational things or have hobbies or things that are entertaining. But I am saying if, if a young man is not willing to put his wife ahead of those things, then he's not ready to be a husband yet. What has been the response, both to the messages that you preached over that year to your church and to those who have read the book? What's the response been? I think it's been good. I, I've heard from people who kind of submission is like, it's like a bad word because it has been abused and it has been criticized. But what, one of the things I've noticed, you would think because of the way that submission is criticized, that women would just be lined up at the door to tell me that it's so barbaric and they hate it, or they would be at marriage conferences criticizing submission and headship. But I'll tell you, Rodney, I've actually noticed the opposite. Most women want a husband who will lead. They want a spiritual man. They want a man who will pray with them. I don't hear submission being criticized. The criticism I hear is of men who will not be spiritual leaders. Now, maybe that's just because I'm talking to more conservative audiences or something, but I don't but I don't really think that's the case. I, I think that'd be insincere to, to attribute it to that. I think the truth is that God has given women a desire to have a spiritual man that they can look up to. And most of the women who, whom I've heard from have said, I like what you're saying, but I almost wish I had a man I could submit to, or I wish I had a man that I could look up to. I wish I had a man who would pray and read the Bible with me. I wish I had a man who would you know, go to church with me. I wish he would be a spiritual leader in our home. My, my spirit, my flesh might not like this, but my spirit just craves this. And so I think the response has, has been good. There's, you know, been a few egalitarians who have disagreed with some of my writing um, or some of my preaching, but I can't run a popularity contest. I need, to, I need to preach what I believe God's word says. And I feel it's a pretty settled issue. I think, to be honest with scripture, is to recognize these things. And even people who have had a little bit of a aversion to these topics for whatever reason 
have kind of said, you know, I've, I've heard this taught before, or I didn't really like this before, but what, but the way you explained it, or when you shared these verses and what they do mean or what they don't mean, it makes a lot of sense. And it, it's a lot um, easier for me to accept. So I think the response has been good. Beyond preaching about marriage and writing about marriage, where else has your writing taken you? I kind of think about Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, like he, God just says, hey, head south, you know, and then Philip heads south and he doesn't know where he's going or what he's doing. He just kind of takes the, the first step and then he gets the next step. God says, head, head up to that chariot. And that's kind of been my journey. It's not like five years ago. I sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write all these books about Christian living. That's what it's turned out to be. My wife said, hey, you preached on marriage. It went over well. That ought to be your first book. And then I wrote a book about marriage. And then I had some sermons on suffering and trials. And then I wrote a book on suffering and trials. And then I had a bunch of material on work and rest. And I wrote a book on that. My finance book comes out, Your Finances God's Way, comes out in May. It's been kind of a step-by-step, you know, your word is a lamp to my feet. I mean, when you have a lamp, you don't see miles ahead. You just kind of see the next few steps. And that's what a lot of my Christian journeys look like, just kind of praying and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Direct my steps, direct my life, use it for your glory and honor. I mean, that's a frequent prayer of mine. Use me as your vessel, however you see fit, and then just kind of seeing how God brings me along. There's one other book I wrote. I have a big heart for typology, types and shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. That's kind of how I came to love Christ, was seeing how Christ was revealed in the Old Testament. And I wrote a book about Abraham and Isaac uh, in Genesis 22, because if you don't see Christ through Abraham and Isaac, then you see God commanding a father to murder his son. And that just looks horrific. But if you understand, if you see Christ through it, then you see God telling Abraham to do something that foreshadowed what God would do with his son 2,000 years later. And so as soon as you see Christ through Abraham and Isaac, the whole account takes on an entirely new meaning. We know God didn't really want Abraham to sacrifice Isaac because he stopped him. If God wanted Abraham to do it, he would not have, you know, the angel would not have stopped him when Abraham held up the knife. And so if God didn't want him to do it, then what did he want? He wanted to reveal what he was going to do with his own son 2,000 years later. And so there's incredible typology between between Isaac and Jesus and between Abraham and God the Father. And so I wrote a book about that too, called The Father Offers His Son, which examines that typology. I have a proposal that's being pitched by my literary agent uh, out to different publishers right now that will hopefully get hopefully get picked up. So that's another thing I've really enjoyed is typology. So I think that's pretty much where my writing has taken me uh, to address some Christian living topics, nonfiction, and then to address some type, types and shadows. It's interesting that you compare there the Old Testament to the New Testament because we hear this argument that the God of the Old Testament seems to be this grumpy God who just wants to point out where we're going wrong and is very strict and here are all the rules and yet there's this loving God in Jesus that we see in the New Testament. And I wonder if that's because people just haven't been reading the Old Testament because I see a God of mercy all the way through. And as you say, this foreshadowing of what is to come. That's a really great point. And what's something kind of interesting, Rodney, to think about, the most common criticism of God in the Old Testament is not that he was too severe. It's that he was too merciful. And I'll just give you a few examples. What was, what was Jonah's problem? 
Jonah said, I knew you were going to forgive them. He was angry that the Ninevites were going to be forgiven because he knew how despicable they were. Jonah was so angry about the survival of the Ninevites that he asked God to, to kill him. He didn't even want to live if they were going to live. And Jonah said, I just knew you were so merciful that you would forgive them. But Second uh, Chronicles 33, Manasseh, just the wickedest man. I mean, almost a satanic type figure. You know, he sacrifices his sons to Moloch. Yet God forgave Manasseh when he repented. Habakkuk, the first chapter, Habakkuk says, he says, oh God, I know that you're righteous, but how can you, you know, look on the prosperity of the wicked? How can you let, how can you let all this wickedness go unpunished? One, one of the most common criticisms of God in the Old Testament was that he didn't punish the wicked, was that he allowed them to prosper. You know, Job 21, Job, Job's friends were telling him, you're suffering because you're so evil. Well, one of Job's arguments to them was, you can't be right, because if you are right, then how do you explain so many wicked people prospering? Which is, I think, in Job chapter, Job chapter 21. The Canaanites, they had four centuries before the, before the Israelites moved in there to wipe them out. And so God was incredibly merciful throughout the Old Testament. And then if you read the Gospels, you've got Jesus talking about hell more than you've got him talking about heaven. I mean, there are some times Jesus preached. And it is incredibly severe. I mean, he talks about people being, you know, cast into outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, cut in, you know, cut into pieces. It's just like, here's, you know, meek and mild Jesus, as we, we think of him that way, just but saying some incredibly severe and terrifying um, statements. And so, yeah, God, God is, I think what you said was very accurate, Rodney, that people lack the familiarity and understanding of the Old Testament they, they should have because God looks... He looks incredibly merciful. It's like Romans eleven twenty two. It says to consider the goodness and the severity of God. And we see God's goodness and severity in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So I don't think God looks different in one than in, in one than the other. He looks the same if we have an if we have an elevated view of all, all sixty six books. I'm sure that there are people listening who would love to get hold of some of your writings to get some of those books that you've been discussing. Where's the best place for people to find you? I have a website, scottlafier.org, and my books are there and, and other information, my podcast with all of my messages and sermons. You can get my books from Amazon. All of them are available on Amazon. Just go there and search search for me, Scott Lapierre, and you'll find my author page with all these books. My website has a contact page, you know, if anyone has any questions or I can pray for any of your listeners in any way, they can reach out to me through my contact page and I'd, I'd be happy to hear from them. And I have a, uh, a free gift too, just for any of your listeners, it's called Seven Biblical Insights for Healthy, Joyful, Christ-Centered Marriages. It's a short read. It's more like a, almost like a pamphlet than anything else with some discussion questions, just seven insights for marriage that I hope can be a benefit to people and that's free to people and they can get it they can get a copy of it on my website there's a great opportunity for people to connect with you there and as you say that that free gift of that book that they can grab hold of scott it really has been a delight to talk to you to look at just some of those different aspects of your life but also of your writings and your speaking and to hear a little bit about your family so i want to say thank you for spending some time with us today on bleeding daylight well, thank you, Rodney, for inviting me. We have a little bit of history. It was good to connect with you after these years and just um, have this time to, to share. And so I'm thankful for you and your ministry and what you're doing to equip the saints. And thank you for inviting me on the show to share with your listeners a little bit. 
Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.